Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. Today I am happy to be speaking with Dr. Shani Scott. She is one of my classmates from Howard University College of Medicine. She graduated a year after I did, and she's currently an internal medicine physician practicing in New York. Dr. Scott, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Of course, of course. So as an internal medicine physician, what is your what is a typical day like for you from a clinical aspect? Right, right. That's an excellent question. So I also had the privilege of doing a lot of teaching since I work closely within a residency program. So my typical clinic today is um, composed of seeing patients alongside medical students and with internal medicine residents. Um, And then at some point in time, I also see my own patients. So just starting from the top of the day, I have the opportunity to meet up with our whole nursing and ancillary staff. Most of my time is spent in the outpatient realm, um, providing primary care. And those days I start with um, sitting in my office. Residents and medical students will be able to see patients first. We'll discuss them, point out key teaching points that they can learn. And then we go and see the patients together. And I have the opportunity to teach them things about physical exams, how to develop a diagnosis, and then most importantly, how to develop a structurally competent care plan that includes the social determinants of health. Um, After that, I usually have the opportunity in the afternoon to see my own patient panel, which is a one-on-one session between me and my patients and where I build longitudinal care. So these are people who I expect to be with for years to help manage their chronic diseases such as diabetes, um, different cardiovascular disease, and any um, arthropathies like gout or osteoarthritis. Outside of that, when I do have the opportunity to attend on the wards, I sometimes am a hospitalist, so about once a quarter, I spend one to two weeks inside the inpatient boards and where I still continue with teaching, meeting with a resident team in the morning. They tell me about new patients who have been admitted for uh, more acute or serious illnesses, and we see them together and then I tr- um, and then develop plans to how to take care of them. That's so interesting because I remember as an intern on the medicine wards, my attendings would come, they'd round, and then they'd disappear for half a day, then they'd come back in the afternoon and round. So what is going on during those time periods where you're not on the wards? (laughs) That is a great question. So I think for me, so, okay, so I'll speak about my experience. So because I also am an outpatient doctor and provide primary care, a lot of that middle of the day time is spent doing one of maybe three things, which is calling and following up with my patients, communicating results, um, helping to coordinate care across our healthcare system. Sometimes my patients need to see specialists like a cardiologist or a nephrologist or maybe an orthopedic surgeon or a pain management 
um, doctor, and I need to help make sure that they're able to get into those appointments in a prompt time to address their medical need. Um, a lot of times I do a lot of faculty things as well, whether it's meetings on how we're going to shape the curriculum. So the, the types of things we choose to teach medical students and residents, I do a lot of meetings on that. And then I also do some meetings um, pertaining to my research, which is on uh, how to incorporate structural competency more into medical education. I believe it's a framework to be anti-racist in our medical education. So that's going over surveys and analyzing data and writing about it and talking to my research partner about it. So those middle, and, and hopefully if I'm lucky, I may be able to grab something to eat. <laughs> um, but um, that's generally what that middle of the day disappear time um, is filled with. Gotcha. Gotcha. So how many patients do you see in your clinic as their um, primary um, physician? So I think that my patient panel at this point may be anywhere between 200 and 250. So that's the total number of patients I'm responsible for. Um, I'm glad I don't have to see them all at the same time. I'll probably have to double check with my clinic director to get the accurate number. But on a day, I can help manage the care of mm, about 50 patients. Um, because that includes the patients that the residents mm -hmm. um, see and the medical students see, in addition to my own patients as well. Wow, 200 to 250 patients. Yeah, Lee. So as an attending physician in internal medicine, you know, coming out of residency, what was your, your first role? Were you, did you come in as an assistant professor or a clinical instructor? How did you get started? Yeah, so coming out of residency, so I did my residency at Cornell, New York Presbyterian campus, and I really wanted to still stay within the New York system, but wanted to work with a patient population similar to my medical school experience mm -hmm. like I had at Howard in D.C. So that really drew me to the Bronx um, because that's part, that's the biggest reason why I got into uh, this field to begin with was to help provide health care to underserved populations. So when I first started as a when in academics, I knew I wanted to stay in academics. I was a clinical instructor, and that was for about a year period. And then I was promoted to being an assistant professor, which is what I am now. And as an assistant professor, a lot of your response to each university or each academic center, their criteria for what is required of an assistant professor is varies. But mainly the main components of it are your ability to kind of build a niche for yourself in academics, so an area that you like to become an expert on. For me, it's anti-racism in medical education. So I, I become, became an expert on structural competency, which is a teaching ideology from Vanderbilt um, by one of the main um, medical educators there. And trying to apply it to what we call graduate medical education, which is once you're done with medical school. So that's internship, residency, and fellowship is what we call graduate medical education. So my research interest is that. So I have to publish a certain amount of papers regarding that. I also have to do a lot of teaching, um, whether it's within my institution. It can also be regionally, meaning within like the new... New York area, the tri-state area, um, and then having the opportunity 
to do some national things. Um, so I'm grateful and very humbled by the fact that I've been able to do grand rounds already within the city. And I'll also be doing workshops at, uh, at a national conference for the Society of General Internal Medicine this year. And additionally, I'll be doing a workshop for in, um, the Northeastern Conference for Social Determinants of Health. I was about to give you the abbreviation, but no one would know what it is. So, um, so that's a big part of it. So hopefully if I can knock all those out the park and continue to write and be published in medical journals, then I'll be promoted to an associate professor. All right. We're going to speak that into existence. <laughs> so we talked about the clinical aspects of your job as an internal medicine physician what are some of the administrative roles? I know coming out of medical school and even coming out Ooh, of residency, yeah. yeah, I didn't know that that part of medicine existed. So what's the what's the <laughs> admin side that you have to do? Oh, Lord. Oh, it's, it is. It can be intense at times, but admin um, that I am responsible for outside of just regular note writing also includes... Um, for me, um, within my role as a clinician, lots of forms for my patients to make sure that they get services that they need, medication, or what we call um, durable medical devices like canes and walkers or maybe a, a wheelchair. That all comes with a lot of paperwork, um, being able to kind of write letters and for people's jobs or forms for people's jobs and employment is a big part of it. Outside of that role, I also do a lot of paperwork to help maintain the residency program. So that means writing evaluations for medical students, but more specifically for residents or so interns and residents, and evaluating how they're performing and progressing through their training, making sure that they are hitting each of the, what we call core competencies mm -hmm. of training. Um, and that requires a lot of writing. I do meetings with the residents a lot. And then I'm also right now responsible for interviewing new applicants. So all the medical students who are interested in internal medicine and want to apply to residency here at Montefiore in the Bronx, I go, I and um, along with my other associate program directors, have the privilege of going through their applications and doing interviews and um, writing that all up and put in organizing it so that um, the program can have a list that we put into the match on the other side. Wow. So as the assistant program director, as you know, the interview process was very different this year because of COVID. Mm -hmm. So what are, yeah. what are some things that you saw done well with the virtual interviews and things that you saw done not so well? And, and of course, this mm -hmm. is a, uh, you and I, this is just a conversation. We don't represent our institutions when we're speaking, but <laughs> what are some things you noticed with the virtual interviews? Yeah, I, you know, overall, I'm a big fan. Um, I'm down for anything that helps increase access for people and lowers the bar or the entrance rate for people to get into the profession. So I think this year we were able to see a lot of people apply from across the, the country a little bit more, a little bit more broad as far as the regional demographics. I also like to see that there are a lot of a lot more applicants who are considered to be underrepresented in medicine apply to our program. 
And, and most importantly, our program hosts a virtual um, underrepresented in medicine, I guess, virtual open house this year. And we had more participants than we've ever had in the other years because wow. it's all virtual. So people were able to kind of tap in and get a chance to know the program. Um, but with that said, I think the biggest drawback, and I think a lot of people would um, agree with this, is that it's harder for the applicants to get a feel or a sense of the culture. I know for me, you know, I went to Howard for undergrad and I went to Howard for <laughs> medical school. <laughs> so, you know, I definitely wanted to train someplace where the culture was I knew it wasn't going to be similar um, and not as nurturing, but I wanted to be a place where I knew I was going to have a safe haven and people who could mentor me and support me through the process. Um, and it's hard to really get a feel for if people are like being genuine and authentic, or if they're just reading off of a script, if you're not there in person, like it's, there's a difference between, you know, seeing how the doctors interact with the social workers and the nurses, or maybe they see a specialist in the hallway on your interview day. And they're like, Oh, Hey, what's up? How you doing? Right. You know? And you're like, Oh, okay. They're, this is very collegial. They're very personable. This is nice. As opposed to people just stonewalling each other or throwing dirty looks. You're like, all right, this, this is maybe not the place for I mean, you know, depending on who you are. Right. So I think that's the hardest thing is to kind of translate that culture through the um, virtual interviews. Well, time will tell how that worked out and definitely uh, wish you the best of luck picking your new new class. <laughs> Thank you. Also, as an assistant program director, what are some things that you know now that you didn't know as a resident? Some things that people in academic medicine look out for in trainees and things that trainees can can do better on? I think now that I have the chance to pull back and look behind the curtain, um, I would say the biggest thing trainees can do it, that they may take for granted is research and networking. Because unfortunately, medicine, I think to some extent, some programs are better at this than others can still be a good old boys club. Mm. I consider myself to be a revolutionary person in regards to that, to dismantle all of that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, until more of us are in that position, depending on where you're applying, that can still be very pervasive. So I think sometimes, what you can do, like having a, like researching with a certain person who has, who routinely um, presents at a national conference or holds a position for a medical society nationally um, or does a lot of grand rounds can be a clue to let you know about how large their network is. And if people can recognize who that person is and kind of know like, Oh, they're not hard, you know, kind of give you their attributes. Like, Oh, they're a hard worker and they do tons of research and they're super cool. So if they give this person a stamp of approval, then, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to not completely be influenced by, by it, but take it under consideration. I would say that is one thing that I've learned now as an associate program director. Yeah. Oh, and then like, Prepare yourself. Yes. And this is <laughs> it, it mind needs to you, be said. 
Right, right. Prepare yourself. Like, please come with clinical scenarios that you've thought about. Don't over-rehearse it. But if there's a Kate, like an admission or a discharge, have like three, four, five of them just ready to go and be ready to to talk doctor because that's what people want to are kind of passively assessing is like, is this person sophisticated enough in their clinical knowledge at you know at this stage and do and most importantly is do they understand how the healthcare system works mm-hmm. enough to help patients move through it so that they can hit the ground running when they come here. Now, I'm going to put a little asterisk by that and say this is spoken by a New York City associate program director (laughs) in the Bronx. So I don't know what the pace is everywhere else, but I know if you're planning to train in New York City, you know, coming across to be able to hit the ground running from day one is always a good thing. That's good. That's good. So as a black woman physician, what are some things that you've Mm -hmm. had to work your way through or you've struggled with uh, making your career? (laughs) Oh, um, I would have to say first and foremost, and I tell this story all the time, um, is that going, transitioning from medical school at an HBCU being like where literally, I mean, see if you can speak to this, like literally <laughs> your classmates are like family, yeah. your professors are like, you know what I mean? Like your professors and administration are like family, you know, you can, you can be very, very used to that. And like adjusting to the culture of another institution, I felt personally like I was being dropped off in the middle of Baghdad. So I had to learn, no disrespect to anyone who's actually been dropped off in the middle of Baghdad, but, um, you know, I had to learn quickly how to kind of socialize in a different way and like understand, you know, the different, a different work culture, um, and honestly make honest, just make peace with the fact that I am not going to be understood and that's okay. And that's okay. Charles Drew wasn't understood. Dr. LaFall wasn't always understood. Like There are tons of people, particularly black physicians who became, who came before me, who made it possible for me to be in this um, position that I can't even imagine what it was like. So in those moments where I felt misunderstood or misjudged, um, which were frequent, um, I knew that I was a trailblazer. I, this, this is the work. This is, you know, the wall. Kamala Harris said something when she was doing a talk that resonated with me. It's like when she was talking to a group of young girls and she said, you can break through glass ceilings. But when you break through them, you know, you may get some cuts by some of that glass, (laughs) you know, Um, it is not a passive process. There's going to be a lot of challenge in it, um, but you can do it. So as a black woman in medicine, I think that I had to kind of make peace with that and know that I am, you know, going to be one of few and that's okay. And I always be comfortable with standing out. That was a big thing for me in residency. I literally went from, I went to HBCU. So I was not used to people knowing where I was every second of the day. <laughs> like, cause I was just yeah, one of many. Yeah. 
you know, while, while I was training, people would say, oh, I saw you on the third floor with a chicken sandwich. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, I'm like, I guess you did. I'm the only black one. All right. So, um, which was something to get used to. Um, and then I think last but not least was like finding your tribe or your community. Like for me, um, I'm super, super, like, all the, like, black and brown residents that I trained with are, like, were so crucial for me, and we kept each other going, and it was nice, and to vent, and to validate, and then, honestly, some of them, I felt like even put, helped put me on game, right. because they had been in the system, you uh, have been in, you know, that culture, that work ethic, for or that work culture for so long, or longer than I had, were able to kind of get me hit and like, and, and to build and to kind of build those bridges and connect, um, was, was very, very helpful. So you'll learn to like really treasure your tribe as well. Absolutely. I mean, you can't say enough about Howard. Like we were talking earlier, the first time we I met, know. I mean, it wasn't even anything special. We were, like you said, in the, um, God, what do we call that place? Oh, you're talking about outside the quiet lounge? Yeah. No, that was like the regular lounge. We're outside uh, for the for the barbecue, right? Or the fish fry. Right, right, right. The fish fry outside of, um, what was it, 1018, 10? Oh, Lord, we have to edit this because we're going to lose some street cred. Yeah, it's been a minute. But, yeah, we're out there in the courtyard. They had the uh, DJ going. Yes. And we were just standing there. Yep, it, wasn't, yep. it wasn't anything crazy, but Howard, like, you knew mm-hmm. everybody. It was just, It was a family. Yeah, yeah, 100%. It was a regular day, and we didn't even know what we had. Right. The alumni, <laughs> yeah, the alumni Association would do the fish fry, and they give you two tickets. Yep. That, that didn't work well with the tickets, but, <laughs> oh, man. So, Dr. Scott, let's take it way back. When did you first decide to go mm. into medicine? Oh, my gosh. To be honest, I don't remember because it's the only profession that I've ever, a job I've ever wanted to do. Like, I can remember telling people that when I was, like, in kindergarten, that that's what I wanted to grow up and be. How do you know what a doctor was? Yeah. Well, my pediatrician was amazing. I was blessed that my mom... um, was a social worker at, well, at the hospital is not closed, was at United Hospital. And she was the social worker for their pediatric ward. It may have been pediatric oncology, now that I think about it, because those kids did not have hair, if I remember correctly. And I don't remember specifically, right. specifically the specialty, but uh, I'm going way back into my memory. My mom worked in a hospital, and so when I was younger, she brought me to her job a lot, and I remember having so much fun. It was all the physicians there were, like, super nice, and now I know, of course, they are because they're pediatricians. <laughs> and right. tons of, you know, and it got tons of toys. Um, so I always had this positive affiliation with the hospital. I always like playing with the kids or even, and honestly, very early, I was very used to being around differently abled people. Um, just by the nature of her job and her just incorporating me in it. Um, and then I would say from there, my own pediatrician, shout out to Dr. Johnson in East Orange, New Jersey, um, <laughs> who I thought was like Superman. I thought he was phenomenal. He always made me laugh. He, I thought he was just so brilliant. Um, his nurse, who I love to death, she was awesome. And so all around, I just associated, you know, medicine with like a good time and nice people. 
And then from there, as I got older, my dad, who um, spent a lot, a lot of his interest in marine biology and evolutionary biology, that's when it kind of switched into being more academic with him. Um, and I just grew to have this love for uh, life science, honestly, any science. I, you know, at one point in time, I wanted to be like a geologist because I just loved rocks so huh. much. But I, I went out of that phase and kind of like, took on the whole life science um, passion and, and just went from there. And I've always been focused on um, going into medicine and having, having a profession where I can marry the two, like the social and the science aspect. Wow. And then uh, obviously, so you came out of high school, you went to Howard university for undergrad. I did. How was that for you? Oh, <laughs> Uh, amazing, of course. So I was a bi, yep, regular bio major, chem minor, and oh my gosh, I can, I'm like thinking, oh, I just had a flashback of all my professors. Shout out to Dr. Twitty. <laughs> she made bio <laughs> unnecessarily hard. Yeah, shout him out. Um, yeah, so yeah, bio, I remember it being all fun and games until my junior year when I wanted to take like where you started to get into more upper level courses and I'll never forget my dad pushing me to take harder, I guess, elective courses. So I took a lot of pair, I took parasit, I took molecular, I took biochem. Um, and then I took, um, neurophysiology, all of which paid so many dividends when I got into actual medical school. Yeah. Um, but I would say my outside of the life sciences, my favorite definitely was organic chemistry and um, physics. I like things that I can see. And I felt like those are sciences that kind of explain the natural world around you. And my organic chemistry teacher was the one who kind of gave me a lot of inspiration to push myself like you know don't just coast but go for excellence like instill that drive for excellence in everything that you do um and I kind of carried that with me and it helped me uh, propel me to get into medical school which was at Howard University College of Medicine <laughs> HU class of 2015 yeah. oh you know that's so <laughs> cool so Dr. Scott you've got so much going on you've done incredibly well because we I was class of 2014 you finished in 2015 Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been incredible to reconnect, to see where your career has taken you. It's just amazing to see what Howard alumni are, are doing across the country. Oh, thank you. And you too. This is amazing. Thank you for creating this platform and allowing us to share our experiences. And I hope that um, your listeners are able to kind of gather little nuggets and tidbits around the way. And most importantly, know that medicine is a wide open field for you to kind of create and, and, and kind of manifest and actualize yourself. Absolutely. You said that like, like we're wrapping up and we are wrapping up, but not, not just yet. Uh, <laughs> oh, good. Cause I got, I can listen. I can keep what I'm talking. Yeah. 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 We, we'll keep talking. So in addition to being an internal medicine physician, your assistant program director mm-hmm. for the residency, you do some research. So tell us about your mm-hmm. research interest and some things that you're working on. Sure. So my research interest is in medical education. And it's a smaller field. I would say it's a smaller-ish field of research. Most of the time when people think about research, 
what comes to mind are things what we call bench research or translational research. And then there's clinical. So kind of like how they did the COVID vaccine mm-hmm. was at first it started off in a lab and some test tubes. And then eventually they came up with a product that they then gave to a select group of people, which would be the clinical side and develop this amazing vaccine. My research looks into how we create formal curriculum for trainees, particularly for people who are interns and residents. Um, Because when you finish medical school, the learning doesn't stop. (laughs) Um, And now it's time for more specialty-specific lessons. So in my case, that's internal medicine, which covers a lot of topics. Um, And so... What in the pa- and so in the past, a lot of our medical education is very Eurocentric, based off of curriculum and formats and strategies that were developed in uh, like Germany and then translated over to American um, system of medical education by the Flexner Report. Um, I actually did a podcast for the BMJ talking about the Flexible Report and all of its flaws and how it's led to a lot of the inequities that we see today in our medical education system. Nice. Um, and so, but this is still perpetuating today. So my research focuses on how can we change how we teach interns and residents to think about health disparities in a certain way, and most importantly, how to push them to critically think about solutions for these health disparities um, so that we can create change at the structural level. Um, Initially, when this type of work started, people may be more familiar with cultural competency, Mm -hmm. which is, I would say, is like the precursor to what we now evolved to understand as structural competency. So it's and not just understanding because culture is so dynamic, meaning it changes all the time. Like what I was doing in the nineties, I'm not doing now. Culture changes. <laughs> right. Um you know, it's hard for our profession to kind of keep up with that. So, and because of that, you know, targets always moving, but what is more helpful and actually what doesn't change over time and actually has the most influence on how a patient's health is, is the societal structures they live within. So how, like their housing, their um, environment, whether it's polluted or they have or they have access to clean water or clean air, um, education, job opportunities. These are different. These are called the social determinants of health, and they're also tied to structural systems. So I try to, so my particular research is how we can teach interns and residents more about that in their clinical experience. So when they walk into a patient room or when they walk, you know, to admit a patient into the hospital, they're they're aware that there's disparities that have led to this patient being here in the state of illness and that they're asking about it and thinking about solutions that they can create to help hopefully help that patient, but at the very least be agents of change so that the system can change and create less disparities in health. That's incredible. That That's huge. And it goes to show you the difference between, you know, maybe a private practice p- position that can treat, you know, 50 patients a day, but you go into academics. Now you're educating that healthcare workforce that can go out and touch mm-hmm. 50 patients a day each. And yep. with your curriculum, teaching cultural competency or rather uh, structural competency 
you're really mm-hmm. helping to to build that physician workforce to help combat these uh, healthcare inequities. Mm-hmm. Yep, you got it. And they're going to come in year after year, and it's going to be mine, tons and tons of mines. It's great. Awesome. <laughs> well, Dr. Scott, it's been so great to catch up with you to see all the things that you're working on. Thank you. Thank you. And same to you. Um, as an, an aside, there's a second part to this podcast. Uh, I call it uh-huh. Ethically Sourced. And we talk about different ethical issues in, in medicine and healthcare mm-hmm. with the goal of improving, mm-hmm. actually improving patient care, right? These stories are inspiring and, and hopefully encouraging folks to follow your footsteps. But I also want to provide some education for how we can provide the best ethical and culturally competent and often corporate structurally competent care possible. So I, w- I would love to have you back in the future for some episodes there where you can break down this uh, structural competency. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I am there. All right. Thank you so, so, so much for joining us. Of course. So be sure to follow Dr. Shani Scott on Twitter. Her handle is Dr. S D R Shani S-H-A-N-I-R Scott S-C-O-T-T on Twitter. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighborhood anesthesiologist.